Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is a by the book episode, a conversation with Tim Gombas. And several weeks ago, you noticed that I released a by the book intro episode, which was a short explanation of why I've decided to begin some conversations slash interviews with some authors whose books have been particularly meaningful in my own life. And so to launch our series, which again will just be sprinkled periodically throughout the podcast, I've decided to bring in Tim Gombas, whose book, The Drama of Ephesians, had a profound impact on my life about 10 years ago. And I've been sort of interacting with Tim over the internet, through his blog, through Facebook and other things since then, and always walk away encouraged and strengthened as well as um, given a slightly new lens to view the church through. So I want to invite you into the conversation that Tim and I had a few weeks ago. We get into all sorts of topics. We walk through a little bit of his story and what led him to the writing of this book and how he's discovered some insights that many people gloss over. We walk through some of the history of evangelical culture, particularly in America, and some of the blind spots that we tend not to notice. I guess that's why we call them blind spots, right? Um, But we talk about our Christian identity, and we talk about, um, you know, exposing our own fears and being willing to lay ourselves completely bare before Jesus and have him navigate uh, through some of the mess that we find ourselves in on a day-to-day basis. And so you'll notice I'm not much of a techie guy. Some of you have picked that up in the past and there's even a spot maybe 12, 15 minutes into this episode where I think I've lost connection with Tim. I actually hadn't. It's just my internet went bad for a brief moment and uh, I interrupt him thinking that I've cut him off and yet the recording continued right on. Um, unaffected and so there's a small little change in the middle but I thought you know what we're having a real conversation and in real conversation stuff happens and sometimes you drop a call and you got to call your friend back and so I've just decided to leave that alone and let you experience what I experienced with Tim the day we had this talk and so um, I just offer to you um, a conversation that I think will be enriching it will be encouraging it will be humbling it will be challenging but it is completely centered and surrounded with the love that Jesus has for us and the love that he has for the world. And so I offer to you our first By the Book podcast episode. Welcome back, Unbinding the Bible listeners. Uh, This is our first um, episode in our By the Book series. And I have with me today, Tim Gombas. Uh, Tim is married to Sarah, and they have three adult children. And Tim teaches New Testament at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. And he has written four books. Two of them are already out, and we plan to talk about at least one of those today. And two more are forthcoming, hopefully, in the next six to 12 months, uh, maybe even getting ahead of schedule. Um, but Tim is, a, is an avid lover of baseball and golf movies and music and i'm just very thankful to have him on the show so welcome tim hey thanks for having me joshua i'm glad to hang out yeah no i really appreciate you jumping on here and and being a part of this with us um tim one of the purposes i have in in doing this by the book little series are just a number of listeners to this podcast have asked me if i have any recommended reading list of some of the things that have shaped my thinking as a result of this podcast and others have just asked 
hey, I've been in churches for years and years of my life, and I've not heard some of the things that you are saying on your podcast. And so I assure all my listeners that nothing I say is ever original. And yeah. um, it, it's unique to me to have you as the very first guest, because I'm not sure if you know this, Tim, but it was your book, The Drama of Ephesians, which um, hit me so particularly hard. I think it was in 2011, maybe 2010, um, that after going back this week and, and reviewing your book, I realized, oh, that's where I got that idea. Oh, that's where my thinking changed on this particular point. So I, yeah, I really appreciate this and thought that may be a way for us to begin our conversation here. Um, and, and maybe this is a self selfish way to think about it, but you know, it was a worldview shift for me, Tim, when cool. I first read your book. And so I just wondered if maybe we could start and you could sort of give us maybe, um, maybe a little bit of background to your study to that book, maybe you personally, or as well as what led you kind of to research this. Um, and then how, how do like worldview shifts happen for, mm. for believers? Man, that's such a great uh, question. It's a huge question. Um, let me just try to think about that and sort of recount uh, some developed, uh, development of my thinking and see if I can arrive at some way of kind of capturing that. And, um, when I first started studying the Bible really intensely, uh, when I was an undergrad, uh, I just, I was in Ephesians for a long time. So this is about 30 years ago. And I just fell in love with that letter and several other New Testament letters and uh, other parts of scripture. I just became a voracious reader of my Bible in college. Um, and I, I just, Ephesians, it just, I just love that letter. Um, several years later, I was teaching, uh, I was in, in a Bible study in, when I was in seminary with college students and we, I twice went through Ephesians. So like, this is like the late nineties, mid, mid to late nineties. And, uh, every time I returned to it, I just felt like things were making more sense to me. And. Um, I, let's see here. I, I had been raised and trained in, um, uh, you know, pretty straightforward conservative evangelicalism and, um, uh, with, uh, you know, kind of plan of salvation, kind of gospel and individualistic, um, mode of thinking. And, uh, the more I read Paul and Ephesians and the new Testament, and the Old Testament, um, all these texts are addressed to groups of people. And so I try, I, I, that just, um, that was a little bit of a struggle for me because it's like uh, so much of the Christianity that I inherited had everything to do with me and my inner life. Uh, Christian behavior looked like sharing the gospel, but that was it. And as I studied uh, biblical texts, it was like, there's so much more to do and to, to be as a Christian person. And you can't be a Christian person without being in Christian community because all these behaviors are communal. And that, that just couldn't quite get my head around that. But um, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, it, it just became clear to me that loving God was loving others. Hmm. Um, and then, so I was in a, when I was in seminary, 
uh, I was in a, a big church and I was on uh, intern there leading a campus ministry uh, based based in the church and it was a conservative evangelical place focused on scripture and the Bible and you know these are intense years of study and all that kind of stuff um, and the, the church that I was at uh, well I let me just see here I just have to be plain spoken so I'll just tell I'll just give names and dates and yeah all that please stuff. please do yeah um, thank you I was at uh, I was at the master's seminary this is uh, mid to late 90s I graduated with my MDiv in 1997 and um, was just a true believer in that uh, in that environment at Grace Community Church John MacArthur was the pastor we were all about the Bible it was just Bible 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 and um, over the course of a couple of years, um, I began to see that there were dynamics of uh, practices and dynamics of injustice at that church because it's such a massive organization. And it became clear to me that there, that uh, when, it, when a church becomes an organization, dynamics take over that sort of nobody intends, but the, they're real nonetheless, where um, uh, people who are skilled and attractive and compelling and have leadership skills are sort of advanced up the chain, and people that um, might have a rich character um, or people, uh, people who are just committed friends and have uh, people of substance, if they're not sort of socially attractive and compelling, uh, they're sort of kept among just the people that you know, don't quite matter as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, there was some other issues and social dynamics that I found troubling. And I saw some people uh, hurt um, because of just organizational dynamics. And I, I, I couldn't quite find the language to say what I was seeing. But it seemed to me that, you know, when with large groups of people like that, um, and, and when something becomes a big organization, it, it starts to just become like a business. And uh, in corporate settings like that, dynamics take over that are greater than the sum of the parts and that um, tend towards injustice, exclusion, oppression, um, and uh, dynamics take over oriented by money and power. Mm. Okay, so I'm seeing all this and it's like, uh, you know, some other things took place that were just troubling to me. So, I mean, just thinking about how worldview shifts take place, I, I, I was seeing things happening in the Christian community that I was part of that, I, that troubled me, but I couldn't quite figure them out. Um, I graduated with a THM in 2000 from there, and I left to go to the University of St. Andrews and was going to study uh, wisdom traditions in in Ephesians, that's just something that struck me. I was still in love with Ephesians and thought, this is interesting. Um, and as I started to uh, begin my, my studies of the letter itself and do all the background reading and um, study of the structure of the letter, all this kind of thing, it became clear to me that, um, that Ephesians had a thesis statement, which is Christ's exaltation over the powers in one nineteen to. 23 uh, mm-hmm. and, that, and that nobody was saying that I, I thought this is you know structurally this is how the letter holds together and 
that uh, Christ's lordship over the powers and his triumph over them is a massive part of how this letter unfolds. Um, right there in, in chapter 1, then they're, they're sort of in the background of everything that's happening in chapter 2. Uh, they're significant in 310. They're significant at the end of the rhetorical um, armor of God stuff. So I went into studying uh, the background of these figures of powers and authorities. I came to see that they are uh, responsible for so corrupting creation and um, kind of orienting corrupted community dynamics so that uh, uh, when, despite the fact that nobody intends corporate uh, relational patterns uh, to, to be unjust, they sort of just end up being unjust. Mm-hmm. And people end, yeah. up, people end up participating in systems of oppression when, when individual wills are well-meaning. Like, like there can be good people that are caught in racist structures or there can be, um, you know, a lot of uh, well-intended people can be uh, participating in social um, dynamics of oppression when they don't know it. And they would, if they knew it, they would choose not to, or at least, you know, they would be, you know, they feel badly about it. That's right. So that, that just uh, blew my mind. Like this, like I saw this several years ago i saw it but i couldn't name it and now i'm finding this language that is enabling me to see that biblical writers saw this and biblical writers um were able to put their finger on these kinds of things and they were naming this so for me uh coming to understand how um uh, a bit more about the powers and authorities and, and what they're doing in Paul's Jewish context and then how Paul describes them. Uh, that ended up, my studies ended up giving me uh, language for capturing what I had experienced and what I had seen. So, I mean, just the way you had asked the question about you know, how do worldview shifts take place, for me, I think, I, I wonder if this is kind of common. Um, you know, some experience, you have an experience that's destabilizing or upsetting or you can't quite explain, but you know something happened and um, you might find, you cast about for resources to try to understand what that's all about. And for me, because I was engaged in biblical study, uh, I, I found resources in scripture to, to explain a lot of that. And uh, what, what ended up happening was I discovered uh, that uh, as part of the rich texture of Paul's gospel, um, part of that is that the powers and authorities are part of this, um, uh, you know, the powers of evil, uh, along with Satan and sin and death, that have hijacked God's good world, hold it in their uh, in their enslaving grip, and that shows up in human cultures through systems of oppression, exploitation. Um, and various forms of mistreatment and injustice, and humans humans are sin sinning when they participate in those. But there are larger structures that are also at work. And as Paul unfolds the gospel in Ephesians, the way that he frames it is that God has broken uh, the enslaving grip uh, of the of the powers and authorities over creation and is liberating it. And uh, that liberation takes place in communities enlivened by the Holy Spirit who are in Christ 
and who uh, identify uh, oppressive ways of life in the larger cultures, resist being ordered and caught up into those oppressive uh, social patterns, and they creatively and actively cultivate uh, community practices and dynamics of um, justice, of self-giving love, of service, of hospitality, and of inclusivity, and um, uh, basically manifest God's power through human weakness. Um, so anyway, that's um, I was just thrilled to stumble on um, on a lot of this because I was able to write my dissertation uh, not on wisdom in Ephesians, but on really the structure of the letter and how divine warfare is not just you know found in that little. Tim, you're breaking up a little bit again. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, well I got you back. Let's see about. Okay. If I just keep talking, is it sort of uh Yeah, there you are again. Yeah, yeah, what's interesting to me is when I hear, I mean, you're probably seeing the same thing that I am. Your, um, you know, the, the way it shows up on the screen, your voice is making a definite impact, but mine is not. I wonder why that's the case. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing I am. As yeah, well. your, yours is a little quieter, and I don't know. I, I mean, I do have a little microphone in addition to the earbuds on my side so it might make it look louder but i can hear you now i don't uh, understand that's weird yeah so you were saying you ended up doing your dissertation then oh yeah so yep my dissertation I, I did on uh divine warfare in ephesians and how uh that shapes the 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 structure of the letter and it kind of runs through the whole thing and is not merely um you know lying behind the rhetorical armor of God stuff at the end. In fact, the armor of God stuff is there at the end because uh, the whole letter is about divine warfare and how the church uh, uh, plays its role in that. Not by you know crazy spiritual speculation, but by forming communities of justice that run against the grain of larger patterns of injustice. Yeah, and it's so interesting because I can see these same things happening like I'm, but but I did not come at this in quite the same way that you did so sure. so what's fascinating to me though is that I grew up in similar settings as as you the ones that you're describing but why don't why do, and I I can't this is my personal experience so then why is it that some of these conservative evangelical churches don't don't have lenses for this like the the principalities and the powers this is not something i grew up hearing about oh yeah and yet it is very plainly in scripture dealt with by jesus on multiple accounts and paul's whole life embodies this so in your understanding i mean why have we missed this yeah that puzzles me i uh that's another um hard question that I've, um, that's kind of weighs on me. And it, um, I've come to see that we just miss so many things. And, uh, I think there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, I think one of the reasons why we, we miss this is be, or I, I guess I would just say it manifests the reality that, um, at least conservative evangelical culture, which stretches back to the founding or way well back to the arrival of um, Protestant uh, white Europeans on shores of this land. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's it's a it's it's really a, it's it's an enlightenment created culture. So we are far more shaped by uh, post enlightenment values. We're far more shaped by mm-hmm. um, uh, ways of thinking oriented by individualism. We are far more shaped by some of the logics of capitalism and competition wow. yeah. and. Yeah. Um, uh, we're, we're far more shaped by ideologies having to do with uh, democracy, liberal democracy, like personal choice. I mean, we, our, our whole evangelical heritage is based on like you have to make a decision to get into this thing. That right. I mean that um, that comes from somewhere historically. Um, uh, so yeah, there's just a lot. We are a product of of Western modern uh, post enlightenment culture. And so all of our modes of thought train us in that way to see certain things in the Bible and not see other things. Um, okay. And there's been yeah. so many shifts. And um, I mean, to my mind, um, the, the Christian movement gets booted out of its cradle within a generation and a half of its birth. So... Um, the natural setting for thinking as a Christian was in Palestine, Israel, the land, whatever you want to call it, was in that region in the first century. That's, that's where all the natural thought forms were available to think well as a Christian. Okay. And very soon, with the destruction of the temple, uh, Christianity gets kind of launched up into Europe. And um, within a couple of centuries, I mean, oh, I should change that. I mean, very soon, Christianity, um, very soon after 100, becomes an anti-Jewish movement when it had been only Jews who were Christians in the first generation. And and, um, so all of the thought forms start to change so gradually. So by by the time of, you know, 300, it's like, it's a very, very different... um, way of being and thinking than what Jesus and the apostles thought about and talked about. So, I mean, how much greater did it shift when it went up into Western Europe, when it crossed the shores and came over here? And um, it's a very, very different thing than the way of Jesus that um, people brought to America. um, And in the name of this way of being that was oriented by self-giving love and service, really launched a genocide of the first people that were here and then mm. enslaved Africans to bring them here and build a strong economy. And, and it, they were white Western Christians that did all that. Right. So it's like that, that way of being um, was a way of being within, this is the story that Willie Jennings tells, but that way of being was a way of being Within which evangelical conservative evangelical Christians develop their theology, so you it's like you can't see I mean you have to not see that the way of Jesus involves cultivating communities that are actively resisting larger patterns of injustice. You have to not yeah. see that that's the case if you are actively cultivating injustice correct so um you know, in the last hundred years or so, um, we don't, you know, conservative evangelicals don't see themselves as participating in patterns of, of life that are 
oriented by uh, racism and injustice and oppression. But you know, Paul calls churches to to see it, like to actively cultivate the discernment to see how you are, um, and that means to me, uh, as a white person, uh, you know, a white man of, of pretty good privilege, I have to. I mean, I commit myself to this. I read a lot of um, black women writers. I read a lot of uh, feminist thinkers. I try to just read and and grapple with how others are seeing the situation because they, very often black women, are the truth tellers of our culture and um, they're the marginalized of the marginalized. And so they've helped me to see ways that um, I'm caught in some of these systems and patterns. And that drives me back to the text of scripture and to do some creative thinking about, all right, what would it look like to participate in, or to name some of these things, but then to cultivate alternative practices that are oriented by God's justice. But I realize, you know, there's a lot going on in our culture that causes us to miss this in conservative evangelical culture. We don't, I think another uh, aspect that causes us to miss some of these things is we see ourselves as uh, God's answer to culture's problems. So we don't, we don't have time. Uh, we got to get out there and do. I mean, evangelicals are an activist people, so we got to get out there and change everything. We got to change the world. We got to impact the culture. We don't have time to have all these discussions about how we might be wrong about stuff. Wow. But it's like we're not called to impact the world. We're not called to change the culture. We're called to um, enter these long-term community commitments of repentance and. Um, Life, uh, cultivation of lifestyles of justice, which will involve service to the larger culture, but not changing it or impacting it or, you know, impacting the culture. That's a violent metaphor of like destruction. And that's, sure. Sadly, that's what we've been doing. Sure. Um, yeah. And then some of the things you've been saying recently online and, and talking about how we vie for control yeah. and at root of control, in my understanding, in my own personal life as well as you know in pastoral ministry control is oftentimes has fear at its root and and that's such a it's such a difficult thing you know again i grew up in the church and have been in it now and even in pastoral ministry for 10 15 years and you know listening to passages of do not fear you know and and we take those as nice they're major comforts because this is a necessary message but somehow tim (laughs) you read these passages or I do. And I think, Oh yeah, isn't that nice? Do not fear. Not realizing what a stranglehold fear actually has real people's lives on the ground where we live. And those have been the, uh, I guess, disruptive for lack of a better way to put it, the disruptive realities for me in recent years is seeing the fears that are inside my own heart. Yeah. Um, about all sorts of things. <laughs> totally get it. And, um, and yet, so, so maybe let me ask you this. You know, today we are very polarized in our culture. Um, and that's not just, you know, in politics or outside in the world, but I feel like Christians are caught right up into that. You know, yeah. you, you have your preferred political angle. And if anybody questions, anything about your theological stance or your life or the way you talk about politics in your mind where does the 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 vehement resistance 
come from that doesn't allow us to listen to a legitimate perspective that contradicts our own, um, but instead have to put up the, you know, the defenses almost immediately? Man, that's a great question. Yeah, there's probably a variety of factors to that. Um, uh, I, probably fear is a part of it. Um, okay. I just when you I, when you were just talking about fear, I just had a, a explosion of thoughts. I just I've I've I have done so much thinking about that. Someone told me, um, someone just made the comment about 15 years ago, maybe maybe longer, um, about how we we tend to relate in our intimate relationships. We tend to operate from our fears, and that's where we do damage. And, um, I just, I, that caught me. I thought that is fascinating. So I've, I've spent a lot of time just interrogating my fears and trying to get to the bottom of them. And, um, and a lot of those do drive controlling behaviors and and relational dynamics, you know, fears that my children won't turn out a certain way or fears that I'll uh, lose social approval or fears that I won't keep up with, you know, other people in competition and yeah. it's, it's, I think it's such a big deal if the gospel liberates us from fear for us to go to work on our fears and find out what's, what's underlying them. I think yes. part of the great, um, part of the, um, the bitterness that we see in our culture is, you know, fear that we might be wrong about something. Um, but, uh, to my mind, what what I love about being Christian is it sets me up perfectly to have good conversation. Um, because as a Christian, my daily assumption is I'm probably wrong about a lot of stuff. And it, <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. if, if so uh, that liberates me for good conversation, I can say, hey, you know what, here's what I think about a thing. Um, and if you object to that and you show me that I'm wrong, there's a Christian behavior available to me that activates God's resurrection power in my life. And it's called repentance. So I'll, I'll gladly do it. I'm, I'm totally cool with that. Yes. Um, I think, yeah, questing quest for control. Like I want, I want to be able to say how all of this goes. So we, we don't like uh, dissenting opinions or other people's opinions. I think a lot of it has to do with identity confusion. Um, there's a, a big part of freeing ourselves from idolatrous, um, uh, you know, the webs of how idolatry captures us. A big part of being liberated from that in the Bible is a clarification of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so, uh, for instance, Moses, Moses has identity confusion in, uh, what's that one episode, uh, when he, um, the Israelites are complaining and God says, speak to the rock. Moses hits the rock and he says, you know, how must, how, how long must we put up with you rebels? And, and Moses confuses himself with God. He doesn't put him, he, he says, we like God and me are putting up with you all. And, <laughs> and because of that, because of that, Moses was not allowed to go into the land of promise. Right. And then in Deuteronomy one to four, he gives to, Israel, a long speech about um, 
about going into the land of promise, and he repeats, I think, three times that he can't go there. And then he repeats three times that um, the warning not to make images. And those are related to each other because to make images, uh, if Israel makes images, what they're doing, they're, they're making an, an association between the one true God of Israel and the image. But the one true God is imaged through humans, not through uh, created things, you know, That's or, right. not through things that um, humans create. So idolatry involves um, a wrong association of identity. And if you think about that, um, well, okay, well, just to complete this line of thought, at the end of that big speech, um, Moses says, uh, all that he says is based upon the fact that God is a consuming fire. And the writer of Hebrews picks up that line. He says, you know, our God is a consuming fire, which is why he admonishes his audience to, uh, <clears throat> to own their identity as the recipients of a kingdom that is coming that cannot be destroyed, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and their identity as the uh, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, not, uh, sorry, of a heavenly city, not of any earthly city. So I, I, that is all rich material for reflection on how we construct our identities. And I think that um, uh, people should take a razor to their identity. I've, mm-hmm. I've been trying to write up a short blog piece on this, and I can't quite, uh, I just haven't finished it, but I, I just talk about taking a razor to your identity to, to identify yeah. myself as Christian and nothing else, absolutely nothing else. I'm not a Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal. So I don't ever have to defend anything. And if anybody says anything about something out there, it's not a thing they're saying about me. Um, right. And if you ever say anything, like, and, and being Christian means that I don't get to defend Christian, like that's not an identity I can defend because being Christian is being dead. Like I am, I am shaped, yeah. I'm, I'm marked by the cross and I'm dead to this world and I'm alive to the next world. So yes. uh, there's nothing that you can take from me and there's nothing that I want from you. Um, and so <laughs> anything, yes. any and every conversation that we have can be a joy filled one. I don't have to be right. I don't, I don't have to be upset if I'm wrong. Um, I can say how I see things. But I think that people get angry because they inappropriately identify themselves with um, with a political figure. Like, yeah. so if I look at the president and uh, someone says um, the president lied or the president made a bad move, if I get angry, to my mind, excuse me, I should do the the rich internal work to find out what is wrong with my own conception of my identity that I see a criticism of some political figure as somehow a strikeout against me. Do you know what I'm saying? Right, I do. And it seems so fascinating when I start to re-listen to Jesus's words of, I've come to offer you life. I've come to set set the captives free. And I can't count the number of times I have been a prisoner to my own need to be right, to my own need to side with the winning team or the best person or that's my favorite movie you can't argue that's clearly the best one and just these petty things that we do but how quickly derailed you can become (laughs) when those things don't materialize in your favor and i'm listening to you describe a conversation where you don't have to be right 
You don't have to convince them. Yeah. It just feels like the weight falls off. Like oh, totally. all of a sudden, I don't have, I don't carry around burdens, yep. um, which of course is what Jesus invites those who are carrying them to come to him and be freed from that. Yeah. But Tim, it, it's just like, this is reality. I don't, totally. I don't know if I, I, I know Lewis, C.S. Lewis would talk a lot about the distinction and the relationship between truth and reality, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially in his fiction. And I'm not sure I could articulate it as well as he did. But what were what I grew up hearing was, here are these truths. They're yeah. propositions to adhere to. They are propositions <clears throat> to believe in. And yet idolatry, as you're talking, is a is a squirrely thing. It, it's, you know, we, we can make God in our own image and think the whole time that we are worshiping him when in fact we oh, might be totally. worshiping Baal or, or someone worse. Um, yeah, projections of ourselves. Projections of ourselves, yeah. Um, which is interesting. So, I mean, have you, in, in your own mind, you, you said you've taken a razor to your fears. Um, have you have you always found yourself this open to be this self-aware um, in your own life? Uh, no, no, definitely okay. not. Um, uh, let's see here. It was about, it was around the same time uh, as I did my dissertation on Ephesians. So probably 20 years ago. Um, and I discovered, I stumbled across the the notion of cruciformity in so I, um, in the progress of my study of Ephesians, um, when I got to chapter three, Paul has like a, an autobiographical section there, as you know. And um, what, what I think he's doing in the progress of the argument is at the end of chapter two, he celebrates the triumph of God, God, uh, um, the temple that the church is, is yes. the manifestation of, it's it's the... It's the symbol that God has triumphed, the, the, the lasting symbol. Yes. Then Paul yes. goes into talking about his own life as a prisoner, which there's a number of things going on there. But I think that the way that that functions in the letter is it's a, it's a signal of the kinds of lives that manifest the triumph of God. And Paul hmm. celebrates being a prisoner and his low, his, I mean, you know, an incarcerated individual. He He basically indicates that God is most glorified through uh, lives of social shame or people that don't resist being socially shamed and enjoy um, their identity as Christian, no matter what their social location is. Um, yeah. And just that, that's kind of the heart of cruciformity, you know, um, going to the lowest possible place as Jesus did in Philippians 2 in order to be exalted in the future. And so for the last 20 years or so, that has just that has shaped my thinking about uh, how I, I mean, well, I'll just be honest. That changed that radically, just because I was um, thinking about this stuff all day and, and working on it and thinking yeah. about it in my long walks home. That completely changed our home life. That completely changed um, my relationships with my kids and my spouse, and it changed the way that I thought about um, when I began teaching. It, uh, you know, just small things like I never, I've never unpacked my um, degrees and never put them on my wall mm-hmm. uh, in my office. Um, uh, 
I I never I not never, but I, I I don't use language like you know my students or something like that. I talk about my my fellow students. Um, yeah. So it's yeah. like I've I've tried to attend very carefully to the language um, that we use when we talk about our identities with relation to others, because Paul is very careful about that in his letters. Yeah. Um, he he uh, he always talks about coworkers, co-laborers. Um, he always postures himself as a fellow called person to all the churches he writes to. Um, he adopts a number of social locations of just ridiculousness and shame. He talks about how he's a, a nursing mother. He yeah. talks about how he's a, a, a woman in labor uh, giving birth to the Galatians. Uh, it's like these, these are all images and it's funny because in the culture I grew up in, we all talked about all the time, you know, Paul's authority as an apostle. He hardly yeah. ever mentions that. But it's like we love these superstar celebrity figures, pastors yeah. that that yeah. have authority and we love authority and power and control. So we have all these, all of our language about pastoral ministries oriented that way when Paul never goes there. So yeah. I've, yeah, that kind of language of cruciformity dramatically affected um, my approach to myself and how I posture myself towards other people. And I've tried to be very aware of, of that. And um, uh, it was a couple of years ago. So a friend sent me something. I've tried to find it and I couldn't find it. And it was, it was the council about um, eliminating. Uh, I, he may have even used the language about taking a razor to your identity and shaving away as much as possible so that in, because he's, he identified identity confusion as the source of so much anger about religion and politics. So like if I profess to be, you know, Presbyterian, that's such a big part of my identity. If, if Presbyterians are ever insulted, that that's going to end up being a fight. Yes. Um, or, you know, if, if my identity is as a conservative person or a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal, then when, uh, a certain political figure or party or position is is called into question. I simply won't be objective about it. I won't be able to take. I won't be able to be a good listener. Right. So, um, just noticing that in scripture, that is that's a pervasive theme is identity construction. So yes. Jesus and God are certain characters that are constructed in biblical texts. So, and that shapes the way we should be thinking about them. And to be a Christian disciple, there's loads of ways that biblical texts construct the identity of disciples, um, which those things should enter our imaginations and spark implications and possibilities for behaving uh, that end up being redemptive. So yeah. I mean, I am I I'm loved. I'm loved by God. That's my identity. I am just I'm servant. I am slave i am brother i am beloved you know i'm image bearer i mean there, there's all kinds of things that i am as a christian that really i i mean this is what i do i just pick up these things and kind of play with them in my mind and think all right this situation just happened what does it mean to be image bearer what does it mean to be beloved yeah. what is it how do i respond to this person as person uh someone who's dead to this world and alive to the next who's both dead in christ and alive in christ and all those yeah. identity constructions in scripture offer me possibilities. And like you're saying, none of them 
are oriented by fear or defensiveness or anger or attack or insult. That's just to do that is to step outside of Christian identity. And what it seems to me drives that is identity confusion. Like I've got to defend the conservative cause or I've got to defend the liberal cause. It's like, why? There's no point. Well, and that's what's remarkable about what you just said, because to be defensive is to step outside of Christian identity. Totally. And how ironic, if that's even a strong enough word, how ironic to defend Christianity or your Christian position yeah. with a means that is unchristian. Totally. I guess that that's the that that idea uh, which your books, I think, hit beautifully because here we we think you know, Paul's writing theological treatises, um, when in reality, he is simply embodying a cruciform way of living and attempting to apply that reality to any number of different church situations. Yep. Um, and I think Second Corinthians is a book that's really been beautiful and helpful in my own life. And I find that interesting because you said, you know, Paul, he's He's a man of authority, and Paul's defending his apostleship. And no, actually, Paul's not doing that in Second Corinthians. Totally, he he is explaining to a church who is looking at his way of life and is not impressed by what they yeah. see, and is willing to go follow some um, impressive-looking speakers that that you know get their goat. And Paul's saying, "Look, you're claiming the the message." Of reconciliation, but if you reject me in favor of these guys, you're rejecting the ministry of reconciliation, which actually calls into question whether you really believe the message. And Tim, I'm like, what? Why is this not being talked about in in you know in life? And so, I mean, I'm I'm trying to talk about it, right? So I I say, why don't we talk about this in church? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. I guess I could start with myself, and and I've been doing that. Um, It's just it's just as surprising to me as it's been to our members to think, is this really what he's saying? Uh, totally. Is that really what this means? <laughs> oh, I hear you, man. Yeah. I hear you. I've, uh, um, I've written up a little bit of this uh, in some comments that I've made. And it, I mean, this has been my experience um, is over the last 15 years or so, 20 years is to, is to be studying this figure, Paul, who constantly is talking about self-giving love and self-emptying and um, the pursuit of the lowest social location so that we can be exalted in the end. Um, and, then, and then to move to the Gospel of Mark, which is all about embrace of the cross and giving up of the pursuit of prestige and social honor and embracing the outcast and uh, embracing those who are socially shamed and who don't matter for the last 20 years. I mean, this has been my study and then to turn away from the text and go into, into the evangelical cultures that I have inhabited and to have them thoroughly oriented around prestige seeking, money seeking, power grabbing, um, it's social honor, exclusion of the marginalized. It's like, it has been the most mind spinning experience. And I, I've, um, I've, I've been so troubled by that. And I, um, I, I don't, I don't know what to say about it. Sometimes I've wondered, you know, I mean, is it, are we just playing a game? Because in revelation, you know, um, 
Jesus warns churches, like, I will leave. I will, I will be gone. So like, all right, some of our churches that are oriented by, you know, that participate in systems of injustice, is Jesus even there? Wow. Um, I don't know, man. I honestly, this has been, it's kind of shaken me up. And I feel like what has also shaken me up is as I look at my life, I'm caught in it. Like I'm stuck in it. Right. Um, Right. I mean, I work for an evangelical organization that, you know, I'm, I'm, I love the one that I'm at because we actually have these conversations about, um, you know, how are women, um, how do we take seriously and make changes uh, with regard to how women are treated in our organization? And we've had we've had uh, this last year discussions about um, uh, racial justice in our organization. So I, oh, I'm that's so great. It's really good. Um, but it's it yeah to inhabit evangelicalism and to study um, the New Testament is to is to just be shaken. Like if you're, to my mind, if you're honest, it's, it's really, it's been a harrowing experience, which has led me to just read as much history as I can, American history and evangelical, uh, the history of evangelicals in America to try to get my head around, like, what is the, how did this happen? Yeah. Uh, what are the shaping forces and what is, you know, just only increased my sense of terror is that there were active steps to cultivate this movement uh, to be a movement oriented by money and power and um, to become a movement that would, um, yeah, enable other people to grab, to get money and power. And it's, 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 I don't know, man, I stand uh, wow. with, with my mouth agape and I, I don't know how to handle it other than to try to talk about it as much as I can. Yeah. And, but also not to just become a, um, you know, a whiner or, you know, I try to actually, when I teach classes, I try to help people that are training for ministry. I try to help them to see, all right, there are, here are some ways you can avoid participating in some of these structures. Here are some alternative creative um, uh, ways of being that you can, that you can consider as well. That's right. So try to be yeah. that, not just, you know, negative, but I think there's a lot, there's a lot of things that churches can do. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. It was, um, I don't remember how many years ago now, but my wife, um, when we were first married, she was reading through Ezekiel and she <clears throat> popped her head up one morning at the kitchen table and she goes, you know, I don't think Israel realized they were committing idolatry. Yo, and I, totally. And, and I said, what? And she was like, listen to this. And she read me a handful of sections. She was highlighting all these places and the people are like, what? We're, we're going here. We're worshiping yeah. you. And of course, the commentary is in the morning, they would go to the temple and worship the Lord. And in the evening, they would go to their shrines and worship Baal. Yeah. And she was just convinced. And I mean, I tucked that away. You know, I pondered these things in my heart or whatever. Just yeah. what is she getting to? And I'm telling you what, that has profoundly shaped the way I read large portions of the Old Testament. Because oh, I think yeah. we have this overly simplistic idea. So that, right. well, idolaters, you know, that's like, well, I worship money or I worship this other God or, you know, do the Christians and the Muslims worship the same God? Or, you know, we, 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 we put them in our categories that we have them in. Yep. And then we just end the discussion by saying, well, I don't worship that. Yeah. Instead of asking, what are the 
aspects and or attributes of God that I claim to be claim to be, you know, loving him for because we are going to embody the God that we worship. We're going to resemble him. Um, which again, I think Jesus just knocks that out of the park, literally. But I mean, he embodies Israel's God. He embodies yeah. the Lord. And what that means for us um, would be actual conformity to the image of Christ. And so, yeah, it, yeah she, she was onto it way more. Oh, that's, <laughs> She's that's got such insights. a brilliant insight. That's so brilliant. Um, and that's what I mean by identity confusion. Uh, yeah. and, and we we never, ever, 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 we never know how we have already constructed uh, uh, idols. Like that's why it's like, it takes active pursuit of like, just with the starting point of, I know we've done this. I know we have these. Let's get to work to identify them. Yes. Um, and this is why I, this is why I say that I think it's really helpful to read the work of other people. And by which I mean, um, outside of our own culture, like people from you know, Christians from Japan or, Christians from South America or Christians who are uh, part of the historic black church or, I mean, just because they can see how white culture in America, how evangelical culture in America is, was purposely built as a white culture and has wow. idolatries woven through it. So it's like, man, we've got a lot of work to do. And that is exactly, I mean, Ezekiel's culture was evangelicalism. I mean, uh, there's that I. The one passage in chapter 33 at the end there where he says, uh, God says to the Son of Man, you know, you see, Son of Man, what all your countrymen are saying about you. Um, they love to hear you. They, 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 they come and it's like they love preaching conferences and they love <laughs> services. They oh, love yeah. all this. This is like they <laughs> buy the books and they buy the MP3s, but they, they leave and they do not do what you say. Wow. So I think that's exactly right. I mean, our idolatries are always hidden from us. And this is why, going back to um, our first topic, I think, why I think it's really, really helpful to excavate our fears because we build idolatries from our fears. Yeah. Um, uh, Israel built their idolatries um, based on their quest for guarantees. Like they, were, they wanted to, to assure themselves of like national security. Right. But God said, if you do what I say, I'll protect you. But it's like, okay, yeah, that, that, yeah. we need assurance of this because, man, the stakes are high. Egypt's really dangerous. Yes. And so also this is really kind of crazy because the first thing that God says to Israel not to do when they get into the land is to make treaties. Because treaties are how you guarantee national safety and security. Wow. And And he... So he wants them to be a people that do not quest for certainty and safety and security, and but only depend on him for that. Um, so Israel constructs its um, idols and its you know its its mis its confusions about who God truly is from their fears. And so I think that's a great place to start. What are our fears? What are we afraid of? And how have we um, thought about God idolatrously made him a God who guarantees us good outcomes? I mean. One of those, I think, is thinking about him as being in control because we're yeah. afraid of living in a world that's out of control. Even though scripture tells us if you follow Jesus faithfully, your experience of being in this world is going to feel like it's out of control. Right. Right. Wow. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah, I just, there's so many levels. And I think, again, having grown up in the church, the unsettling reality is not just, why was I never taught this? Why were we never talking about this? But it is just as unsettling to realize I never skipped a beat. I never knew that this wasn't here. And I'm sure I was every bit as complicit in the exact same places. And so I'm so thankful you brought up identity, Tim, because I really think, I really think that's it. And and I'm not sure. um, I don't know. The two passages that keep swirling in my mind are, are John three, when Jesus talks about, I've not come into the world to condemn the world. Um, but in order that, you know, the world might be saved and the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. So Jesus is literally inviting us into the light with him, which I can't help but think are just the free admission of all of those fears. Um, Bring them into the light. We're not going to be condemned for having those fears. He's not ashamed of us because we're not exemplary Christians in our churches or in our leadership positions. Yeah. But but then in Hebrews 2 where where the author is telling us that, you know, through fear of death, yeah, people were subject to lifelong slavery. Mm-hmm. And and you know, coming we're obviously in the Easter season, but but that has been a a passage that for the last several years at least has really gripped me realizing if Jesus has gone nose to nose with not just fear, but the ultimate culprit behind all fear yeah. is the loss of that which we think brings us life or security or satisfaction. If he's dealt with that, then how how honest can we really be with him and with ourselves yeah. to lay those things before him and say, I need you to help me navigate this? Yeah. Um, and so I, I, you know, even as a Christian, but as a pastor, as a dad, as a husband, I've had to lay out my own fears and they're deep-seated oh they totally in, insecurities and embarrassing shameful things that i've participated in in my life that i don't want to yeah. tell anybody about and and then all of a sudden you you think well i can just push that to the side and that won't affect the way i navigate the rest of my life <laughs> and then it does oh it totally the defensiveness and the anger and the you know the, oh, the fearful God. posturing and so um jesus totally. has been very gracious in my own life just to say listen you don't have to fear you need to bring this stuff into the light and when it's brought into the light we can deal with it there yeah totally if you keep it in the dark it will blind even the way you think about reality, which is sort of where I feel like I've been living for, you know, a long time. <laughs> yeah. I hear you, man. Um, I hear you. Yeah. So it's like, if I know for sure, uh, this, this is why it's so important to me to um, rehearse my identity daily. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm serious. I think about this all the time. Um, I, when I get up in the morning, I, I, it's the, my first thought. And I, when I take my walk in the morning, I take a long walk each morning, I go through who I am. And I, I remember, I remind myself of who I am and the story that I'm in. And I, I'm loved yes. by God. And I'm it, the story that I'm in is called the story of plenty. It's not the story of lack. And yeah. my identity is gift recipient. And I, I'm a recipient of good gifts from God. And um, so my whole life, 
becomes ornamented not with things that have disappointed me or things I'm angry about, but it's all gift. And every person that I will talk to throughout my day is a gift to me. And it's it's just sometimes that's obvious and sometimes I just need to think about like, all right, this conversation hit me sideways, but it's a gift to me. Like, how is it a gift to me? So that wow. that radically changes how I will encounter other people. And then it also equips me to deal with my fears. Um, so I, th- I think about, um, you know, what actually am I afraid of? Am I afraid of exposure of this certain thing? Or am I, am I, am I afraid that I'm going to be seen as failing? Or am I, am I going to be, uh, will I be exposed as uh, someone who doesn't know quite enough? Um, mm-hmm. What are the shameful bits about me that I'm afraid of? And um, um, that being a person who is loved by God at the start, like we are claimed by God and loved. And that's the start of our journey. Like we didn't get to that point after passing a test. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. So that yep. liberates me to be um, willing to talk about anything because everything in my life is moving from death to resurrection. Everything in my life is moving from brokenness to healing. And so yeah. I, I can let go of, and I, and I know that I can prevent that process if I grip too tight out of fear. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, and, and I don't want to psychoanalyze the whole evangelical church because I'm not sure I, I understand all the dynamics at work, but, but even with, with your writings, um, reading your blog or I'll get online and read things, but the drama of Ephesians in particular, um, you know, you address at the very beginning of the book, which is beautiful, that this isn't just a theological treatise that Paul wants to sit down and write. Um, and would you kind of, would, and, and I don't know if it's fear, I don't know if it fits necessarily, but but it it's looking at how are we, why are we maybe tempted to see things that are in the Bible as that, like as a systematic theology, um, and not necessarily see them with the freedom to to describe what you're saying. Like, I mean, Paul, of course, and he writes is I'm a bondservant to Christ. I mean, his whole identity was shaped there. Mm. Um, how how is it? And and maybe to tie this, you know, kind of into the 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 church, but like I mean, why do so many Christians tend to read Paul's letters as theological treatises? Like, hey, we're going to talk about election today. Let's go to Ephesians 1. Or, you know, in, instead of saying, <clears throat> like, I don't know, are there helpful things that you've thought through? Or why has that been something we've had to push against? Uh, I think it's um, it's it's kind of funny. I mean, it's not funny. It's tragic. But I think it's uh, one of the ways that we have... Um, that we've that conservative Christian conservative evangelical culture in America um, is largely white culture. And, um, you know, if you really, you know, you read, um, it doesn't take too much reading to discover that contemporary life in America uh, is, is still dramatically shaped by, the, by racial injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. in my opinion, um, there, there, there was a way of reading the Bible that was necessary for white slaveholders to be Christian and to own human beings. Like, so they had to, okay. uh, re- required yeah. a way of reading the Bible. 
And that, that way of reading the Bible was this, the material in here is about, um, is meant to kind of inform our cognitive grasp of God and all of this kind of stuff. It, it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with how we live our lives. Like, um, our lives might take the shape of a kind of Victorian, um, you know, a, a kind of a social honor publicly and all this kind of stuff and of chastity mm-hmm. and virtue. But it doesn't mean that we have to treat these people with justice and, and identify ourselves with them in relationships of mutuality. So that, that wow. means I read the Bible as cognitive content, not uh, instructions for like how I live my life. And conservative evangelical culture in America is really um, an heir of a lot of that. So the ways that, that we have read the Bible um, basically keep the Bible, keep our lives safe from the Bible. Like we, we have, we have wow. found ways to, to make sure that the Bible never affects how we, how we live our lives as, as bodies in social bodies. I think we do yes. a lot of work uh, making sure that we have our brains um, configured properly and our hearts sort of warmed toward God. But mm-hmm. uh, hearts and minds in the New Testament are essential uh, parts of bodies that act on this stuff. And they, you know, bodies gather in social bodies um, across ethnic lines, across gender lines, and across lines of social status, and they and they don't behave um, in ways that culture says they should behave, as um, you know, according to their social locations. They behave in the ways that Jesus tells them to behave. So, rich and poor yeah. are siblings, um, Jew and Gentile are siblings. Uh, male and female are siblings and they gather under the lordship of Jesus and celebrate together in ways that look like the reality that God created. And I think that many of the injustices that afflict American culture um, have, have also shaped the character of conservative evangelicalism, like, you know, urban and suburban divisions. Sure. Uh, you know, the ways that Christian organizations were all started by white businessmen in the early uh, 20th century and so and, and were created to purposefully exclude black people. So yeah. like, we, we are the heir of purposeful injustice, and that requires a way of reading the Bible, you know, in order to maintain it. Wow. It's, it's um, yeah, I... all the people that are in this culture are good people, well-meaning, but it's like, that's yep. why I try to yep. address the cultural dimension of it because the, the, the culture is doing this to all of us. Yes. And I'm so thankful for that part of your writing. And this would be a plug for any listener on the podcast to get anything that Tim reads or writes and read it. Because what you're doing, Tim, is you're talking about these cultural dynamics. And if we tie this in with the principalities and the powers that there are these spiritual entities at work sabotaging otherwise well-intentioned you know intelligent people you know that's the frustration i'm seeing today at least in the political discussion is everybody wants what an idiot and this fool and the reason people defend a candidate or the president or whoever is because they're like he's doing the best he can and then then you step back and you say i'm not attacking him or i'm not attacking that there are dynamics always at work 
yeah. attempting to sabotage what it is that Christ is calling us to live into sure. and, to, and to be. And so, of course, I, I like the the subversive idea, the subversive language or the cruciform language, knowing that if if God raised Jesus from the dead and he embodied weakness and friend, befriended sinners and, and went the way of suffering, then that is, in fact, the way that leads to life. Um, that's a mess. I mean, I guess that's just a message. <laughs> that's a message I think the church needs. Uh, would you add anything to that in terms of where do you see the evangelical churches need the most from the kinds of things that you've written or that you're talking about now? Like when you look at the landscape, where would be a good starting point? Because there may be listeners on our podcast here, Tim, that are shaking their head yes, but are swallowing hard thinking, oh man, this is an uphill battle in my church, or I'm not yeah. sure how to address this with my family members, or um, you know, how, how would you... How would you encourage yeah. them and, and me to sort of begin this? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing that I would do, and this, I mean, this is what I personally do. Uh, okay. I pretty much have given up any hope of convincing anybody of it. Like, I don't know. Um, that's not, that's not my focus. My focus is on, on me personally. Like, how do I, First of all, like, how do I understand this? Because I think it's, I think the ways that many of us are shaped, this is such a foreign way of thinking. I need to plunge into the reality itself and continue to get a better and better grip on it for me, because it's not something I can just you know, read up on for two weeks and then tell other people, hey, you should think this way. So mm, um, yeah. not only that, but like if I'm a person shaped by the cross, I'm not, I'm not worried about changing other people even other Christians, I want, I want to embody this more faithfully for myself. It just so happens that for me, because I'm a, you know, I'm a professor that teaches people in ministry or people headed for ministry, like I do talk about it and, um, you know, I'm willing to write about it and identify it. I do try to focus on my own story and how I'm struggling toward faithfulness. And I also talk about how our larger culture is keeping us from doing that. So the first yeah. thing I would do is I would really strive to get my head around it and understand it. Um, and then secondly, I think I would, well, I mean, at least what I try to do is I participate in my church uh, from this perspective. So um, our church is involved with a local charity that helps um, homeless people get into sustainable housing. So it's like, all right, there's a venue where I can do some of this stuff, where I can put my, you know, I can sacrifice some uh, time and effort, money perhaps, and jump into this effort to serve on behalf of the church and along with the church, people who are suffering. And I can have solidarity with the, su the suffering and not just give money, write a check, but actually put my body uh, next to bodies that are um, in trauma and yes. do a lot of listening. and. Um, uh, practical things to help, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to find more opportunities to do this. So recently, um, you know, my life for me and my wife has just gotten really awesome. Uh, we have three grown kids that are just the best people in the world and they don't live in our house anymore. So just a lot of time for both of us <laughs> to just do different things. Um, 
And my temptation is, you know, I'm just like anybody else. Like, hey, all right, cool. I've got time for maybe more golf or writing projects or something. Um, but I, I, I had a colleague last year talk about this, his visit to the jail. He taught in the jail. And I was like, doggone it. I mean, right away, as soon as he said it, I was like, I, that's what I need to do. Oh, wow. So I started um, recently teaching in the, in the local county jail uh, once a week. And um, I'm just thinking, I mean, I'm not a pastor of my church. I'm not a leader in any way. I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a participant. But if I, if I were wanting to think about ways of putting this into practice, I would want to be reading and watching documentaries and learning as much as I could about the injustices that, that afflict our American culture. And I'd want to be thinking, maybe cultivating some discussion among people in my church about how do we become a corporate culture as just you know the 100 of us or 200 of us, how do we become a co- corporate culture that moves in the direction um, and that sort of undertakes an arc of repentance that maybe is 25 years long or something like that? Because yeah. it, it, it's hard to, I mean, you've got to do things that are practical and um, concrete and achievable. Um, and, you know, a, a small community can easily be traumatized by immediate change. And maybe that needs to happen. And that, that may happen to communities in this era, by the way. But I yeah. think it's a good thing to um, map out how we might make some changes um, to, to live in some very different ways. And as we go through that process, um, one of the things that I would do um, if I were a pastor or church leader is I would pay very close attention to what is said as we have these discussions. Hmm. Because I think okay. that, um, I think that what you will find, uh, cause I, I've found this in my own life and in conversations over the last 15 years about these kind of things. I think that what you will find is how idolatries speak. Um, because what, what will happen is we'll have these discussions and we'll find out that there are a lot of us that are simply going to our churches because we want to have, we want to sort of add a spiritual element to our lives. And we're, we're willing to do that by showing up to, to a thing for 90 minutes on a Sunday. But we like the fact that this is comfortable. And if you are talking about doing something uncomfortable that's going to challenge my life and maybe just like, well, how, how will that go? Or what will this look like? Or will I get hurt? Or it's like um, people will object. Like, we don't want to do that. Or, well, how yeah. that's not practical. Or should we really be doing this? Or, what, you know, can we really trust these people? Or, I mean, you'll, there'll, there'll be a lot of things said that are the, the verbal and vocal resistance to, to the things that Jesus says to do. And I think that underneath those words and those expressions and those objections, is that's where the idolatries are. Wow. Uh, and it's the idolatries are typically safety, um, money. Sec- I mean, they're, they're all the things that you said in Hebrews 2 are taken care of by Christian identity. Yeah. That's it's right. Like if, if the fear of death, if it, it's like we forget that you started this thing by identifying with the cross, like, okay, you die. Like you said, you die. You gave your life up. You gave up, you surrendered all rights to self-protection and self-preservation. Yep. That's why you joined this community. But I think that for many of us in America, we just never took that seriously. Um, yeah. 
but it's like this is this is what this is about um and that's you know that's kind of why i'm still in mid crisis here because it's like i have a very comfortable life uh mm. i have a lot of privilege and it's like it bothers me that um there's such a chasm between my life and what the new testament talks about so i'm trying to move my life in that direction and i'm trying to move or i, I mean i'm i'm not trying to do anything to my church because that's not my role but um I'm, I'm part of a couple of groups of people where we we do things like this and i'm, I'm encouraged that my church is like that yeah that makes sense and so if i were part of a, yeah. you know, an evangelical church um, I'd, I'd want to start having these conversations. And I, and I, I think as a, if I were a pastor, oh boy, I, I mean, I'd want to talk with pastors about this kind of thing. And I'd want to, um, I'd want to personally, if I were talking to pastors about this, and I had a conversation with a pastor about two weeks ago about some of this, and we, he, we were both very, very honest. Um what are the reasons why we don't do some of this stuff and why mm -hmm. pastors don't shepherd their communities in these directions? And it's like, let's be honest. It's because ministry is a career and we don't want, if you make your paycheck from the church, you don't want to rock the boat. Um, yep. And it's like, all right, there we are. Okay. Now we've identified an idolatry. Like this is, this is the thing that is keeping you from faithfully shepherding the people of God. Like how do we deal with that? Yeah. Um, and I think we have to do some creative thinking uh, about how we might, um, I don't know. I, I tell my students, I just did it. I tell the, the students that I learned alongside, um, you know, uh, I think you should consider being bivocational so that you are liberated from mm. the, the chains of money. Yeah. Um, Wow. So there's ways of dealing with it and, and they're all like, mm, do we really want to do that? I really do want to have a career as a, as a pastor. And it's like, yeah, this is the way that our culture has supplied to us what we should expect of this thing we call being Christian sure. is largely corrupted and it has to be um, examined and interrogated and excavated and, um, I love this project. I love doing that for myself. Um, I just, I don't have the confidence that there's a lot of other people that are interested. Um, if I were a pastor, I'd want to do it and invite my church to participate in that. I do it, yeah. invite my students to participate in that. But um, as a Christian that is part of a church, but I'm not the pastor, I'm, I'm hesitant to badger people and say like, hey, this is you know, what, what you need to do because what I see most glaringly is my own shortcomings in this. And I, I see the ways that I am caught in it. So the way of talking about this that I try to engage in is, is not talking as a prophet. Like I'm calling others out. I'm a, I'm, right. I feel like I'm a compromised priest and I'm, I'm just, I'm mostly speaking in the register of confession. Cause that's a, that's a, mm. like, I'm caught in this. I'm caught and we're caught. Yep. It, it has yep. caught that we have to identify that. Yeah. Well, how beautiful it is though, to have the identity we have as one loved by God, that that will not change the moment we say I'm caught in this. Yeah. And, and I think when we talk about 
we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith in this situation to me sounds like, all right, Jesus, what would a faithful life look like if I let go of this? If I let go of this, if I was shown to be wrong about this, or if I was yeah. shown to, you know, that this doesn't, doesn't actually materialize. And I, I think what I've appreciated the most about you, um, if I can narrow it down to one thing, but it, that is that in my own life, I'm, I'm a very, um, well, I'm a strong introvert, but I'm also really introspective. And um, many times that's to a fault. And yeah. so even when I read scripture, I will apply it internally to the hearts of believers. And I think I'm doing an okay job of doing that, but I recognize what I'm, what I'm oftentimes missing are these, these bigger social dynamics, um, yeah. social dimensions where the um, corporate decisions or corporate blindness, you know, prevents us from even seeing uh, various, uh, various realities. And so I, I meet every Monday morning with a group of, of local pastors. We're just all across all denominations. There's about six of us, I think. And, um, the, the newest pastor to join our group, um, Garrett Saul, actually, you know him, you yeah, had him in class totally. in, in seminary and he, he and I don't, we don't live too far apart, actually about 20 miles. Oh, cool. And we said, all right, for the, for the new pastor, you get to pick the book. And he chose white fragility. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. He had said he was reading it and discussing it. Cool. <laughs> and of course we are a group of six white pastors and oh, we, I initially reached out to one of our black pastor friends and it was confusing for his schedule to make it work. But I, I said to the group, like, we're already off base here by trying to think we're going to discuss a book about race, you know, in a group of six white guys, um, yeah. which is, is what we have and it is what it is. And we're all at least aware of it, but it's pushing on us because we have a narrative that we've constructed from our history classes or from our own culture that is not shared by the author of this book. <laughs> and, um, and, and I've heard you say before, I'm reading um, women of, of color and, and other groups who are describing the same events, but from the side of those who were truly oppressed. Yeah. And um, wow, again, just seeing Jesus's posture toward the oppressed and then asking, in what ways really have I been or am still an oppressor? Yeah. Um, that's a question that I think the Holy Spirit put on my heart about a week ago, actually. Yeah. And I've just been sitting with it because I am afraid, if I'm right. honest, yeah. there's a lot of those things. And he's yeah. showing me slowly and it's freeing. Um, but that's what I'm hoping to, as I, you know, I do this podcast, or as I lead in our church and other things, that there's a, you know, there's a posturing. Yeah. of this that's not condemnatory yeah it's not hey i've arrived at this what's wrong with you and that's what i i love about interacting with you tim is that your your posture is very humble it's very open to learning and you just state things as you see them but are willing to hey if i'm wrong show me and i'll change my thinking you know it's yeah. it's just a it's a freeing life is yeah, what totally it is good. more than anything else yeah, yeah that's cool uh that that is a muscle that we um our culture did not train us to work the muscle of mm. reflecting on what are the larger systemic structures that are holding all of us enslaved. So it's like, it's hard to reflect on it and it's hard to 
um, to name those things because we simply have no cultural preparation to know what we're doing if we try to do it. So it's like we yeah. kind of have to give ourselves a break, but also commit. All right, I'm going to start seeing this stuff. I, I want to start opening my eyes um, because what that does is it helps you identify uh, systems of injustice that have caught us all in them, um, and they and those systems of injustice have also perverted our identities. So it's like um, the reason I love uh, reading uh, black women. Um, I mean, black theologians, biblical scholars, where I can get my uh, hands on their work. Um, uh, let's see. What else? Oh, shoot. I, just, just people that are in other social locations for me. That's all yeah. an effort of um, I, identity clarification. Like, I want to know who I am in Christ. Because if I can separate and, and draw lines between me as, as what my culture told me I am, um, and who I am in Christ, I can start to see some of those distances. So like, I want to know what of my hoping and fearing and thinking and expecting about life, what, what comes from my whiteness and what comes from my Christian identity? What comes wow. from being American and what comes from being Christian? So it's like, I'm constantly digging into all that stuff. And, um, you know, people that are in marginalized cultures are our teachers they're the ones who can help us to, to know who we are. Like black people know who they are. America has told them who they are for 400 years. Wow. But white people don't know who they are. Um, we think we're normal. We don't know that we're actually white. And Christians, mm -hmm. yeah. white Christians have not done the hard work of reflecting on who we are, um, the negative side that needs to be jettisoned, like who culture tells us we are and who yeah. our own hopes, you know, what we say about ourselves from our own hopes and fears. And we don't, we haven't done the positive work of really grappling with who we are in Christ. So yeah. I mean, it's a big, it's a big task. And all of that, I mean, I don't know. I, I sort of have been at this for maybe 20, a little over 20 years. It's like, I just, I just feel like I took the training wheels off. Like I, I'm yeah. really struggling. Um, I'm, I'm really struggling because I did not, in my formative years as a young person, I didn't, I didn't have any of this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I wasn't prepared. And so I'm, I feel like I'm doing a lot of catch up and I find that, um, I find that Christian identity um, allows for me to think that that allows for me to feel both uncomfortable with that. I, I need to keep going, but also uh, at rest with that because I'm still loved by God. Um, there are still available behaviors for when I mess up and say something that is offensive. I can, I can confess it and be forgiven. So it's like, I'm, I'm always in a place of safety and goodness as a Christian. Um, and there are yeah. always available ways of inhabiting every situation. So it's, it's, it's all okay, but it's like, we, we need to develop the discomfort with it, the reality that it's not okay that things are wired this way. But also, I right. can't I can't respond to that as a, a, a white Christian person. Like, just all right, let's do something about it. Let's fix it. Let's get at it. You know, it's like, yeah, all right, That's let's right. learn first. Let's reflect. Let's just listen. Let's really get under the skin of this and see what's up. Yeah. Well, and so if it sounds almost like, and and you correct me, but but this um. 
the book, you've got the drama of Ephesians is out, and that's been out for, I think, 10 years or so. Yep. Um, and then you've got a book coming out, and I know you said you were still fiddling with the title. Have you settled on a title for your Transformation of Paul book that, yeah. that is going to come out in the next few months? <clears throat> yeah, uh, it's, it's called Power in Weakness, and the subtitle is going to be um, Paul's Transformed Vision for Ministry. Yes, I'm almost certain that that's a, it's a, from memory. Uh, Paul's transformed wow, from ministry. So yeah. I, 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 that wasn't the title I wanted originally, but I've come to really like it. It's like, yeah, that, that gets at it. I mean, you know, these publishers and their titling teams know what they're doing. <laughs> well, and it almost sounds to me, you know, you, thanks again for letting me read the, the transcript of that before oh, yeah. you sent it off, but it, it almost seems like that book was you know you you were immersed in Ephesians for so many years and and now saw these layers of reality the the powers and and Jesus's subversive way of defeating them through death and 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 how Paul embodies that and is wanting the Ephesian Christians to embody it it almost seems like the more you studied the more you said wait a minute this isn't unique to Ephesians this is Paul's whole life this is everything Paul ever wrote and then oh, yeah. you're like I need to write another book I mean now there may have been a different track for you but could, could you talk a little bit about the promptings of that book um just for for our listeners yeah this was um yeah ephesians shaped my thinking about about everything and and um michael gorman's work on crucifixion oh, yes this is it's been so formative for me um and then probably in uh yeah, when was this? Between 2005 and 2011, we were part of um, uh, a church plant in inner city Springfield, which is an area just racked with poverty. And I, thinking about um, Paul and then in that ministry context just was so formative for me in thinking about ministry in general. And then when I came up here to Grand Rapids in 2011 to teach people in ministry, it's like this was this was it. I mean, this was what I was thinking about and talking about all the time. Yeah. So conceived of this book as um, a way of thinking about um, pastoral ministry shaped by the cross. Whereas okay. what I see in America today is that so much of how we think about pastoral ministry is seen through the lens of like business, uh, you know, business leadership, or maybe even educational leadership or sports leadership or something else. It's like, you know, we take leadership principles from various other aspects of worldly leadership, and then we try to, you know, slap Bible verses on them or, you know, yeah. Jesus stories. And what, again, getting back to how we do idolatry, it's like, it's a confusion of things. It's so what we've done is we've, we've constructed so many pastoral idolatries by, um, you know, sort of blending the identity of, of, of of a, a leader of a church or really a servant of a church, a, a, a shepherding carer of a Christian community. And we've allied that with a form of leadership that we see in the world when Jesus says in Mark 10, that they are absolutely the opposite. Uh, yeah. And in worldly leadership, um, leaders, leaders are honored when they quest for power and money and achievement and status and prestige and credentials. And so I contrasted all of that, with um, how Paul constructs, how how he actually carries out his ministry throughout his letters. And um, he actually has loads to say about all of that. Um, yeah. 
I mean, just even thinking about um, the ways that we try to construct our identity using social media. I mean, we, we might want to portray our church community as uh, something better than it is. And so hmm. social media can wow. do that because it creates distance between what you see out there. It's a way of controlling perception, um, the perception of someone who's at a distance from what's really going on in the community. And, you know, you've seen this passage in Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, if you've been in it, um, where Paul talks about, um, shoot, was it, it right at the beginning of 12, where he talks about how um, he, knows he's, he knows he's using this social medium of a letter, and he knows that because he's distant from the Corinthians, if he were to talk about the truth of himself, um, he would not be lying, but he refrains from doing it because he does not want them to think more of him than is really true. <laughs> so it's like yes. it addresses the dynamics of social media right there. Yes. Um, and there's so many other aspects of uh, pastoral ministry that affect us in our culture that Paul has a lot of wisdom for and, and, and a, a ways that he um, basically shapes his own ministry According to humility, uh, service, sacrifice, uh, he adopts the credentials of um, low social status. He does not want to talk about ones that are impressive. He, those are, that's what he says is all behind me. Mm-hmm. He's pressing forward to, to um, sort of increasingly adopt uh, more and more social shame so that he can look more and more like a corpse on a tree. Wow. It's like... And this is all, this is how he's talking about his ministry. So it was fun to think about, and then to also kind of, I try to write it really practically so that it would help pastors to see how it is actually possible in this culture today to to uh, reach for some of this. Um, yeah. It might be a struggle, but it's it's doable. Yeah. Well, and 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 what you did, I mean, you even said at the in the preface or chapter one, I'm not sure, but just there's not going to be a lot of footnotes in this book because I'm not interested in writing a big long academic treatise. This is going to be simplified, um, but it is for pastors sure. in churches to just on the ground with Paul. Let's walk with him. Let's take a look at what he sees and what he's telling us. Um, but I mean, Paul embodies this, so that that's the part of the. You know, for me, I keep coming back to your, your opening chapter in the drama of Ephesians, and you know, we are not necessarily reading works of theology yeah. when we read Paul's letters. Like, and I like how you said, not necessarily. You know, they are works, and we can yeah. go to those and 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 grasp things. But we're, you said, we are encountering a theologically informed pastor counseling his churches in living into the fullness of the gospel. Actually, that's in your. That's in your upcoming book, not not in the drama of Ephesians. Yeah. Um, and hey, as a as a guy in a group of six pastors, I won't force them, but maybe we ought to read this when it comes out. That might be a, yeah, the, totally. the next book for us. Because I as I as I sat there with it, I just thought this is stunning, and and we need we we need to embody this because again, the way I understand Second Corinthians is Paul Paul says you're you're at risk of undermining the very gospel you say you believe in yeah. if, if the lives of those who, who claim this do not, you know, yeah. if they're, they're caught up in the power structures of this world, then um, I don't know, Tim, I, I've been, right. I've been walking through revelation uh, sort of for my own study, but I'm, 
I'm thinking out loud, right? So that's what I've been doing on my podcast since about June of last year. And one of the things that keeps coming up for me is that Revelation is very simple. You're either a follower. There's either you know a way to follow the lamb yeah. or there's a way to follow the beast. And yeah. for so many years, I was taught that you know the church will be raptured mysteriously between chapter three and four of Revelation, and they're not really around anymore. And so the, the beast mentality is some foreign government or it's some other yeah no it's it's heart gripping realities that embody beastly characteristics mm-hmm. and this letter is not written to babylon or to rome it's written to the church oh, totally and so wherever the church embodies those types of realities repentance is called for yep and by chapter 18 john literally has to say Come out of her, my people, lest you get caught up in that. We know this destruction is coming because the end has already begun. If you're caught up now in the very things that Jesus already showed are going to be judged in the end, you are going to be judged in the end. Like it's this very, well, I see it as pastoral personally, but it's very just direct and blunt and in in your face and yet at the same time he's blazing a path forward for who and what the church is supposed to be Mm -hmm. um in the world today and um yeah so i think i've been reading your things and then reading revelation and they're they just mesh so well in my mind i'm hoping to communicate that to others so yeah yeah. that's that's the challenge is to think through and to do the work of imagining um, what what might this look like in this community, in this time, in ways that, uh, how can I cast this vision for these people so that we could actually take steps to live into it? And that's a, that's a challenge. I mean, pastoral work in a sense is, is that work of imagination. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really awesome, Tim. This has been... It's been a great conversation. Yeah, it's been a blast, man. It's so fun to talk to you, Joshua. This is great. I'm really thankful. Yeah. And um, I just, as I, as I leave, you know, I, I do just want to reference your, your things one more time. Again, the, the drama of Ephesians, uh, participating in the triumph of God. I'll leave a, a link in the show notes um, to that book. And, and you have one other one that's out. Would you, would you mention that one for us? Yeah, it's called Paul, A Guide for the Perplexed. And that is um, sort of a basic intro to some of the debates and discussions. Um, just kind of gives an overview and uh, an intro to Paul. Okay, yeah, and then there's also the one, the power in weakness mm-hmm. um, that you said is coming out soon, and I'll um, I know that's probably not even pre-released yet, so I won't have a link for that, but but yeah, be on the lookout. Probably some and, um, if some that'll come out like the uh, on some, I can't talk on the internet. It'll be uh, anyway. The stuff will be out. The publisher will put the stuff out, but I don't think it'll be released until end of the year or into the new year. Okay. Yeah. And then you also uh, completed a commentary on Mark. That's right. So in the Story of God series that Zondervan is doing, um, I wrote the volume on Mark, and hopefully that'll be out you know, in January, February, or something like that. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for that one, too, because I know I've been sort of following along, and you've just you know given us little nuggets along the way of, here's what I'm seeing in Mark, and you wrote one just the other day on um just our response to COVID nineteen. Yeah, right. And what that you know what that means from from Mark's gospel and Jesus' teaching. And 
I think Tim, if I can just say this, I I just I so appreciate the the richness, but the on the groundness, if that's even a word. I mean, you you just are very, um, very clear, very easy to follow, and you say things, and I think, oh goodness, I've read that passage. I can't tell you how many times, and I have never thought about it like that before. Cool. <laughs> and so it's just, yeah, just it, it almost feels like, yeah, that community, you know, we need one another, first of all. We're not Seriously. islands unto ourselves, and that's really one of the, the main reasons why I've chosen to do this little by-the-book series, because we need community. And so yeah. you've you've provided a lot of that for me, and I, and I thank you for that. Oh, that's cool. That's awesome. And so if people want to find you, um, are there, you know, your blog, your Facebook, like what, what would be the best way for people to try to connect with you and to follow you? Yeah, probably there. Um, just Faith Improvised is my blog. And uh, I've, I've gotten back up since, you know, this quarantine. I don't really have anybody to talk to. So I'm doing a lot of writing. <laughs> I let it languish for a couple of years. And, you know, people can find me on Facebook if they're interested. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's really great. Yeah, I um, I know we were having some technical difficulties for a while, but we've been going for an hour and twenty, and we haven't had any oh, interruptions. Bye. So this is this is wonderful. So um, I've loved yes. it. Thanks, man. Yeah. Well, this is really great, Tim. I appreciate it, and um, thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you. It's been fun. Right. Well, I sure hope that you all got as much out of that conversation as I did. I have to admit that as the host of this podcast, I do have an unfair advantage, and that is that I personally get to have conversations with great guys like Tim and just to interact with their books and with them as people. And I hope you just got a chance to hear the heart of a man who loves Jesus, who loves the church, who wants us to rightly interpret those realities and how we navigate our own lives through the world. And so he does fit very well in line with the podcast, and you may have heard some things there that you've heard me talk about before, and you may have heard Tim challenge areas that I've never even touched on, and that is really a large reason as well why I wanted him on this show was because he continually challenges me to think outside of just my own personal life and to look at the structures and the systemic things in our world that blind us from being able to see reality the way Jesus does. So thanks, Tim. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's all the time we have for this week. Um, Next week, we will return to our Revelation study again, and hopefully you're tracking along with me there. If you would leave a rating or review on this podcast, um, on whatever app you choose to listen to these on so that others can find the podcast and tune in. Or you might just decide, hey, that's a conversation I'd like to share with a friend. And I would love that. Just share this episode all by itself and pass it on to somebody who could be encouraged by it. So thanks for continuing to tune in. Talk to you next time.